first rule of show business is don't follow that. <laughs> Thank you, kids, for singing for us. If you have a Bible with you, I want to open to Matthew chapter 2, or you can follow along the same text as printed in your bulletin there. Um, our Christmas cards this year, which I'm pretty sure none of you got, um, the further you are away, the more likely I am to hug you or send you a Christmas card. So you're here. Um, but the card was uh, uh, Merson's picture of rest on the flight to Egypt. It has a picture of Mary holding the Christ child uh, up in the front arms of the Sphinx with kind of a light from heaven sort of shining on her there. And then Joseph lying on the ground uh, sleeping beside them. And it's a little bit sentimental with the, the baby and the light. They look cleaner than most refugees would look, I think. But when you look at the picture closely, you do see a, a different reality, that they are uh, dispossessed refugees. And they have had to leave in the middle of the night with nothing. And they're by themselves, and they've got this baby, and their life isn't anything like what they thought or hoped it would be. Uh, they had to leave because of... Herod's tyranny. Uh, Herod, who may be crazy, maybe not, uh, he's very violent nonetheless, had uh, issued his decree that all the male children under two years old around Bethlehem were to be killed. And having been warned in a dream, Joseph and Mary leave and they go to Egypt. Um, but the slaughter of the innocents shines a light on human evil in the world. Right? The world suffers under the rule of false kings and tyrants. And they're experiencing this firsthand very brutally. But the story of Herod and the slaughter of the innocents also shines a light on why we need a Savior like Jesus to come to put an end to the evil in the world so that it won't always be this way and this won't always be our experience. Both the uh, the uh, suffering of victims under human evil and cruelty needs to be redressed. And then something needs to be done to stop and change the cruelty of the perpetrators of evil. And so we're going to look at this story. Um, you kind of have two di different sets of characters. You have the parents of the children and you have Joseph and Mary who are the victims of violence. And you have Herod and his soldiers who are the perpetrators of violence, and the hardest thing I'm going to ask of you tonight is to identify with both sets of people. That Jesus came not only to rescue us as victims of human cruelty and evil, he came to put an end to our cruelty and evil in the world too. And we need to be rescued on both counts as victims and as perpetrators. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you'd um, give us a greater honesty and insight into our own hearts than we naturally have. Um, we ask that uh, in the stories of these people that we're going to consider tonight that we would feel the need that we have of a Savior like Jesus to come to our rescue. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 2, beginning at verse 13, says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Talk about the perpetrators first and try to think about Herod. I don't know how you get your mind around Herod and the kind of person he was. Um, He seems um, clearly driven by power and ego, but it feels like more than that. It feels like he's mentally ill, like uh, paranoid. At least uh, news of a baby being born uh, to the Jews for a grown man who's been king for a long time. You would hope and think that wouldn't be such a threat, but he does see it as a threat. Of course, violence is his go-to. You know, the people that we know from outside of uh, extra-biblical references that he killed, um, he killed 45 members of the the Jewish Sanhedrin. He killed his wife and his mother-in-law. He killed his son and his stepsons. And that's what we know with the limited information you get from that time period. Um... But another way to look at it besides paranoia is to say that Herod's really the first person who clued into who Jesus really was. He was the first person who perceived the threat and took it seriously. Um, He was called the king of the Jews, is his title. And if he hears that there's going to be another king of the Jews, he knows that that can't be. There can only be one. And so he reacts so that there won't be another king of the Jews. And really what he did was he clued into how threatening Jesus' coming is to all of us, uh, he just did it early. In some senses, he was the first person to say, give us Barabbas, right? Uh, Given the thought of Jesus, uh, I can't abide him being who he says he is because he's such a threat to me. He's such a threat to my kingdom and my rule of my own life that I can't abide him. Um, So he tries to have him killed. Now, like a lot of things in in the New Testament, you see, um, Jesus' coming wasn't just to spread a message of nonviolence and peace. Right? He wasn't just a Jewish Gandhi. He came to topple leaders from their thrones, to throw down unjust kings, and to reign in their place, to expose corruption and expose cruelty for what it is. And if he had just been a teacher of peace and someone who, you know, advocated for nonviolence, they, that storyline just doesn't give it enough explanatory power to the effect of Jesus' life. There would be no reason for Herod to react this way, first of all, nor for the crowds to react the way they did at his crucifixion. Um, there'd be no explanation of why a message of nonviolence and peace turned the Roman Empire upside down and spread across the world. Um, the reality is Jesus came to do more than just to teach us what God's law is. He came to set things right and put an end to evil. And that's a threat to everybody. When you finally figure out who Jesus is, you're left in a situation where you can't like him. You can't like Jesus. You either have to love him and bow before him, or you're going to want to kill him. 
If you like Jesus, you don't understand Jesus. Uh, nobody, nobody that liked Jesus uh, ever stayed in that place in his life and ministry. Pe- people either went to the give us Barabbas side or they bowed down and worshipped him. And that's because they figured out who he was. He comes as a threat. Um, now, the reason say that and talk about it is that it's important for us to understand why he's a threat to us. And that when we look at the problem of evil in the world, we realize that a large part of the problem of evil in the world is inside of us, not just external to us. That we're part of the problem, uh, not just the victims of it. Um, why there's a quote in the front of the bulletin. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It's uh, from a man who was a, a survivor of Auschwitz. And he said that uh, in order for people to be honest about their own capacity for evil, that it would behoove us, if it were possible, to have every man and woman in the world, at least for a day or an hour or so, uh, be present in the death camps while they were operating still to see what's going on. He said this would be like a test of maturity for people before they could get married or vote or get a driver's license. And the reason he gave for this, and you can see it there, he says, I believe this peek into hell would ripen their image of the world. For only those who have seen how little is needed to peel what is human from us, to turn us again into animals, can understand the world into which we are born. You see the weight of his argument. The problem is uh, it's a cheap shot at animals because animals are not cruel the way human beings are. Right? We're not just turned into animals. We're turned into devils. Uh, we turned cruel. Um, when, think when you look at a Herod or a Hitler or some other uh, person who's done devastating evil in the world, um, you grasp for explanations for who they are. You, you start to look for mental illness or some kind of circumstance in their life that, that makes them an outlier. That they're of a different kind of being than I am and than my friends are. Um, with Herod you do this. With Hitler you do this. But what about the soldiers? Both at Auschwitz and the soldiers who were involved in the slaughter of the innocents around Bethlehem. What do you make of them? Were they all just sadists too? Um, the explanation gets less plausible when you try to say it that way. All of them were sadists who were happy to fulfill these orders. How do you, how do you rationalize going? They said it was probably, given the size and population of that area, about 20 families where they went and killed. Uh, so about 20 families would have been victims of this. And the soldiers went and carried out these orders. How did they manage their consciences doing that? It's hard to imagine, hard to understand. You think, what kind of a person would not stand up in a situation like that and say, you're crazy, of course I'm not going to follow those orders. What kind, of, what kind of devil would follow those orders? How dare you give me those orders? Uh, but they didn't stand up. They found a way to rationalize going ahead and taking part in this. What kind of people wouldn't stand up in a situation like that? I mean, the answer is people like us wouldn't stand up in a situation like that. People like us typically don't stand up in situations like this. And these kind of situations we know are fairly common in the world. Because 
what the soldiers had to rationalize at some point is this. It's like there's something in my life that's more important to me than being the kind of person that doesn't kill little children. Something's more important to me than that. It's a, uh, it's a functional God in your life that you are committed to serve no matter what. So maybe that's the security of your job and your income for your family. You think, I can't stand up against this. I would lose my job. I might even be imprisoned. Um, I can't afford that kind of a loss. So therefore, I will go ahead for the sake of my functional God of security and work. I will go ahead and commit these crimes uh, for his sake. Uh, Maybe you can't afford to lose the money. Maybe you can't afford to lose your political position. Maybe you can't afford to lose your reputation as a soldier in the Roman army. Maybe you just can't afford to lose the comfort that would come if your security and money were put at risk. But all of us, when when we sin, when we lie and abuse people, and when we debase ourselves, and when we steal and kill and hate, we do it in service of our idols, our functional gods. And if those things are important enough to us, and if we fear them enough, Uh, we're able and willing to do remarkably terrible things. It's not really a Christmas movie, but if you you don't believe me on this, watch A Simple Plan, Um, the movie with Bridget Fonda and Billy Bob Thornton, where finding some money and deciding to keep it, even though it's not theirs, leads them to all sorts of unbelievably gruesome behavior. Even though they think of themselves as nice people, certainly the kind of people who would have stood up to a Herod. But this is who we are. And so Oz Guinness says when he talks about um, Auschwitz and the German Holocaust that says the phrase that you often hear is the motto for those who are remembering the Holocaust is never again. But he says if we're honest about who we are, uh, the phrase should probably be you never know. You never know. So Jesus came to rescue people from this kind of evil, but he also came to rescue these kinds of evil people. That he came actually to forgive people who were corrupt and and evil in the ways that these people are corrupt and evil, in the ways that you and I are corrupt and evil. The people who, under orders as military uh, personnel, nailed Jesus to the cross, heard him say what to them? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He came to forgive People who are not just imperfect or not just human. He came to forgive people who are his enemies. People who are deeply broken morally. uh, Like us. To set us free from our guilt that we could never make up for. What do you do if you're you're one of these soldiers for the rest of your life trying trying to tell yourself that you're a good person and convince your family that you're a good person? What could you ever do to change that story in your head or their heads? No matter what you did, it's like you're still the person who uh, perpetrated the slaughter of the innocents. That's who you are now. And Jesus says there's forgiveness for anybody, no matter how bad. No matter how bad. But he also frees us from these functional gods that tyrants can use to leverage us into horrible behavior. Uh, We don't have to be afraid of somebody who can take away our security or our position or our income. Because we have a Savior who said, I promise that my Father will take care of you if you trust me and obey me. And so he sets his people free to resist tyranny, 
to push back against cruelty, to push back against bullying, to not be so easily swayed by and subject to it. Because Jesus came to rescue perpetrators of evil. But he also came to rescue victims of evil, to come to their aid when they think no one will ever come to their aid. You've got these families, first of all, the parents of these approximately uh, 20 boys that were killed. What did they ever do to deserve this? I mean, they're bystanders, basically. Who knows how much they even knew about Jesus? They may have seen a few strange visitors, but who knows what they even knew about him? And their collateral damage somehow in this war, this cosmic war between God and the devil and between the tyrant and those who he feels threaten him. And of all things, you think, uh, I mean, what's worse than losing a child at that young age? I mean, that is literally a fate worse than death. Uh, No parent would say um, that living that way is better than dying. And yet here they experience this for no good reason. It's pointless. Of course, he says in his uh, narrative, he quotes Jeremiah and says, this is Rachel weeping for her children with a loud lamentation, refusing to be comforted. Of course she refuses to be comforted. How can you be comforted in a situation like that? That's the kind of suffering that uh, hardens many people's hearts towards God in the first place. So say, I, I, uh, I'm just not sure that I can sign up uh, with a God who would let this happen in his world. And of course, that's, that's a poignant complaint. But what are the answers given? I mean, where is comfort when you suffer under the meaningless cruelty in this world that so many human beings suffer under every day? What what are the possible words of comfort you can give to parents in this situation? What comfort can a materialist give who believes that the natural world is all that there is? He can say, toughen up, suck it up, buttercup. Nature is hard. It's red in tooth and claw. This is the way things are. Uh, Stop being so sentimental. I think that goes against something that's deeply and basically human in us. Uh, We don't just ignore these things and say they don't matter because it's just the way things are and we have a stiff upper lip and we're stoics. There's no comfort in that. Overgeneralizing the religions of the East would say that the comfort we have in suffering is to deny suffering, to say that like everything else in the physical world, it's illusory. And the hope that we have is not to somehow grieve well or find comfort for our grief, but to detach ourselves from our grief, as well as all other desires and emotions. Uh, The hope from the East, as the uh, Japanese uh, Zen teacher, T.T. Suzuki said, is... Excarnation, not incarnation, excarnation, to remove yourself from the feelings and experiences of body, bodily life because they are illusory and not real. Which sounds like cold or cruel comfort to these parents to say that their love for their child is illusory, their grief is illusory, and the hope that they have is to ignore it, to be dispassionate in the face of their children's deaths. The hope that Christians have 
doesn't answer every question or every perplexity we have. We're going to talk about it a little more in depth next week, Lord willing. But the hope we have is in the incarnation, is that we have a God who sees our suffering, who cares about our suffering and does not ignore the cries of the oppressed, and who intervenes and experiences our suffering firsthand himself. Only Christians have a God who can be empathetic to them in their suffering. And he's also the God who's promised to end it. He said our tears and evil that causes those tears is going to come to an end. It will not always be this way. And so victims of evil find that they have a rescuer. Someone who comes to their rescue. Someone who's experienced what they've experienced and who has promised to put an end to it. And so you come to Joseph and Mary last as you think about the characters in this story. Also victims of human evil. Their strange life has just gotten stranger. You know, they lived through all the events around Jesus' uh, conception and birth, the angels, the visits to Elizabeth, the shepherds coming to visit, the wise men more recently having come and brought these, these strange uh, rulers from the east, bringing all these gifts, seeking the Christ child, talking about the stars. Um, and now they get this dream which apparently only came to Joseph. And I, it's hard to imagine him breaking this news to Mary. You know, I had a dream that says we have to get up and go to Egypt with our baby. You had a dream. <laughs> I would have follow-up questions. You know. When? Now. Middle of the night. Just whatever you can grab and go. That's going to be, that's going to be your life now. That you went to bed feeling fine and got woken up in the middle of the night and told that your life now is the life of an exile. That you are a refugee now. And that you're going to be an expat and you have to flee with nothing uh, to a place where you don't know anybody, uh, where they don't like you. And you're going to have to live there. And that's going to be your life. Because this crazy king has decided to lash out the way he has. Victims of evil. All of a sudden, in the space of one night, they become people like uh, Emma Lazarus described, the tired, the poor, huddled masses yearning to breathe free. They became the wretched refuse of teeming shores, homeless and tempest-tossed. That's their life. Now, they are refugees, and they're victims, and their victimhood and other people's cruelty and evil feels like it often feels, it feels like shame, right? It feels like shame, which is the refugee's experience, not because of anything they're culpable of doing, but it's just shameful to be without a name, without papers, without a job, without uh, knowledge of the culture that you're in, uh, without any of the things that normally give you a sense of security and dignity, and now this is what's happening to them. People, like all of us who are made for glory in the image of God, uh, find themselves debased by indignities and shame all the time. And it's not supposed to be this way. It's a result of evil in the world. And Jesus has said he's going to come and put a stop to that. And the way he did it is to come and identify with our shame. Because his life was filled with shame. Things that he didn't deserve, but that he experienced. The birth in a manger, in a barn is undignified. There's not room for the likes of you 
in the end. He became a refugee, an expat. So he was there, what, from ages two to five or six, probably, if, if they get the dates right with when Herod died, when he's learning language. And so he's learning Egyptian, I guess, and Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, but he's like a, an expat now. He doesn't fit anywhere uh, because his accent's always going to be funny. His experience in Egypt is always going to be shaping in his life. Uh, he was slandered throughout his public ministry. People said he had demons, right? Uh, his hometown rejected him and thought he was uh, pompous. And then his crucifixion was one uh, painful indignity after the next. He's felt our shame from the inside, is what that means. We have a God who cares about our shame and who comes to us loving us in it, dignifying us in our shame and through it, and promising that this will end, that the result of his work in the lives of Christians is that uh, they will be restored to the glory of the children of God. And this is our future. And all the shame that horrifies us that we think of in our lives will not be what defines us. The glory of the children of God will be what defines us because he's come to our rescue. Example. What happens with this is that... uh, It turns Christians out towards broken people, people who are suffering in indignity and shame. It turns Christians out towards refugees and prisoners and people who are dispossessed. Um, We have known Jesus to be all of these things, and he's told us now when you treat the least of these in your orbit, uh, those who are dispossessed, those who are prisoners, those who are refugees, those who are naked, when you treat them with kindness and mercy, you do it to me. We recognize Jesus in the lives and experience of the poor and the refugee now uh, because we know of his mercy coming to us and becoming an exile and a refugee himself. One of the best examples of this I know of is the story, I I may even have mentioned it to you before, is the the village of Les Chambon uh, who in occupied France uh, sheltered uh, many, many Jewish people Refugees, especially there are a tremendous number of children, a lot without their parents, whom they sheltered in this little town in France. They had a Huguenot pastor there named uh, André Tronce, probably, and uh, he preached a sermon after a weekend in which there had been a huge roundup of Jewish people in Paris by the Germans. And in his sermon, he said the Christian church must kneel down and ask God to forgive its present failings and cowardice. And so his church in his town uh, took that to heart and they began to shelter and protect uh, the Jews and their children. They uh, were a part of an elaborate system, an underground railroad to get people out of occupied France and into Switzerland. Eventually, a pastor was jailed along with his assistant pastor and the headmaster of their school. His cousin was killed in the camps. Uh, Their physician was arrested and shot. When Tromsø came out of prison, he had to go into hiding. And his wife Magda uh, took up the mantle then and led in his absence. But there's a a young girl who had been rescued by the village of Le Chambon who wrote about this later. And she said, nobody asked us who was Jewish and who was not. Nobody asked where you were from. Nobody asked who your father was or if you could pay. They just accepted us, taking us in with warmth, sheltering children, often without their parents, children who cried in the night with nightmares. 
people of Le Chambon were Christians. They were people of the Incarnation. People who knew that their God had become an exile for them. Right? People who knew that because Jesus had come to their rescue, that they were free to risk all that they were risking, their money, their safety, their lives. Because they knew that Jesus has come not just to be an amicable teacher of nonviolence and peace. They knew that Jesus has come to put an end to evil, and they put their hope in him. Now let's pray.